Welcome to Fourth Times the Charm, where niches need. I'm your producer, Ben, alongside your director, Matt. Monty is conducting a seance in the other room. This is Fourth Times the Charm. Matt, uh, tell me something mildly interesting. Uh, something mildly interesting, really putting me on the spot here. Um, that the, so this is mildly interesting. The villa that was originally built by the Medici family, who is one of the most famous and wealthy families from Italy, um, two multiple family members from the Medici family ended up becoming popes. Um, their villa is owned by the French Academy of the Arts. Um, and is a is a place where um, artists can spend a residency with a yearly stipend to learn and engage with the classical art that's in the villa itself, as well as the other areas around Italy uh, near the villa. And I learned that because there's a man on YouTube called Prince Stash, who's the son of the man who used to manage the villa for a long time. That is my fun fact of the week. What's your favorite thing the Medici's did? Uh, use political and financial power to leverage themselves into becoming popes because it shows the bureaucratic work nature of the organization that is the Catholic Church. And it's a very clear Fourth example. Times the charm. That was both niche and neat. Maybe not so niche, I, I, but it I, was neat. I do have one other niche thing I can share. Sure. Um, so this has been a recent fascination of mine. And now I'm going to preface this by saying I've never actually gone out and done this type of activity, nor like many of the adjacent versions of it. Um, but in the last like month, I would say, or like last three or four weeks, I've gotten super in to backcountry skiing videos uh, and like high alpine skiing. skiing videos where people like climb to the peaks of mountains in like Norway and Canada and Sweden and like ski off the sides of mountains in the middle of the wilderness. Yeah. 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 And then they're, and then they're going down the mountain and then a Yeti comes and it's chasing them from behind and they still got to go through the little picket points. Cause that gets them bonus points, but eventually the Yeti catches them and eats them. That hasn't happened yet in one of the videos, but I'll okay, keep I'll keep watching. I'll keep watching. But this is like it was one of those things where like I knew backcountry and like um, helicopter skiing is a thing where you have like a helicopter drop you on top of a mountain and you can ski like these lines or colliers that no one has ever skied before. Um, and I but I was like cool. That's just like a thing people do because they're thrill seekers, right? But I, I realized in this instance that I realized how I initially engage with a lot of like activities, which I think is how I've come to like understand different things in the world is instead of like watching videos and like listening to interviews with people who do it professionally about why they want to do it. Cause that was my question. I was like, I want to hear from the people doing this very niche and neat thing, like what motivates them to do it? Is the same? Is it like the same thing as climbers? Is it the same thing as like skydivers or like people who do other extreme sports? Like what is it? But I, for some reason, couldn't bring myself to actually just Google that. So instead I watched like an hour and a half of gear breakdowns of the best gear for doing the sport in like the last two years. Um, 
And it was like such a, an incredible way to actually fully engage with the like true nature of actually pursuing that kind of like career or just like, you know, passion. Um, and it is really fascinating. I went out and bought snow pants today. So it's like really fresh on my mind, like the powder <laughs> though. I now do... you can like pretend to be one of them. No, I just like snowmobiling. Uh, but I do, I do want to do it. Like watching it. Like, it's like, it seems like I was like climbing and like watching the climbing videos that I watch either like the competitive ones or like the, like similar kind of like high alpineering kind of like alpine hiking, like through snow and ice. Like some of those things seem like it, when I think realistically are unaccessible to me because I'm, you know, now almost 30 and like training and getting into a hobby like that is like requires a lot more free time than I might necessarily have, especially with a kid coming, but it's really easy to do the hiking stuff. And then eventually the skiing stuff at a low level, cause then I can do it with my family. And that can be like a way of like getting to learn how to do like the baby version of what I'm watching these professional dudes do online, though it is nerve wracking because you become a fan of the personality of these people. And then you're like, Man, if you ever like stop uploading videos, there's a good chance that means you're dead. That those are two niche and neat things that I've gone uh, been engaged with as of late. What? Tell me something from your deep dwells of the internet or the. I, I I'm just deep in thought, thinking about skiing in those situations, yeah. considering how much tall snowdrifts mm-hmm. cause me angst. Really. Well, I'm well, I'm being a little facetious, but well, you like, know the concept of skiing makes me very uncomfortable. Have you ever gone skiing? I've gone sledding, okay. and that was thrilling. So, Ben, here's here's my proposal for you. In tw- let's say 2025, we 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 plan and we meet up in Colorado, and you, me, Re- uh, Rebecca, and Taryn all go take skiing lessons together unless rebecca already knows how to ski that's that's not a confident enough answer but my we have friends who live out there so we got people to stay with and there's rocky mountain pro wrestling so we got something to do when we're not skiing I got that dude so pissed on Reddit. I, I, I want to go back just for that reason. Um, but I'm saying, Ben, by, in 2025. And I'm buying using a family pack. Damn right. Well, I'll have, I'll have a child by then, so it'll be, it'll be real. Um, by 2025, you and I will go. In 2025, you and I will I th- go. I, thought, I thought that when they said family pack, <laughs> it, I thought family was a suggestion. I didn't no. need to know it had to be by blood. Well, like, it didn't say. It didn't say. It had all this text under there that was very hard to read. And none of it said you need to actually be part of a family well, I, to I buy think, this. I think, yeah, I don't think you need to be. Hence why we still got into the show. But the implication of a calling it a family pack and not a group package. Okay. Okay. So when you go to the grocery and you buy family size, are, are you telling me that only families are supposed no, to eat that? I'm not if saying. If you get the family size Tostitos. Ben, I'm not saying you're wrong or you're in the wrong. I might have done the same thing you did. 
But what I'm saying is the person being upset with you and your 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 fellow groomsman besides me coming coming to to his defense and not yours makes sense because it's about the spirit of the deal especially cuz you bought two which is he's makes just it upset even funnier <laughs> he's just upset that they were a little silly gooses Honk. silly geese Honk. i i don't think it was I think he it was, was a little silly. I think he it was, was a little just silly. mad, and and I love my still my favorite part of that interaction is him pretending that he didn't know any indie wrestling organizations from around the world. So it would seem like when you listed out the ones that we you and I have frequently been to, he's like, yeah, I'm, I've never heard of those. <laughs> that was my favorite part. Oh man. Okay, fine. Yeah, you convinced me. Let's do it. Yeah. You you heard it right, first, well, people on air and on recording. Ben is gonna learn how to ski with me. We're gonna go right. as adult men in our thirties and take ski lessons together as beginners. <laughs> Can't wait to go down the bunny slope and Dude, only the bunny slope for the first time. We're gonna get there. I think. I think. I think we can progress quickly. I tripped I, on the sidewalk this morning. I have and I com- hurt my foot. I have confidence in my physical coordination abilities to at the very least get up to doing like intermediate hills and like one and a half trips. Wow. I think, I think if I if I, I spend like I if I spend like a week learning and just skiing or like you know, a couple days, like getting the basics down. I feel like I'd have the confidence to try a harder, a harder course, like a, like a real intermediate course. By the time I go back the next time to do it after like, you know, like a day or okay. like a, like an afternoon of warming up on the easy Hills again. Well, you know, Matt, we've been warming up the, the easy Hills of this conversation. Well, yeah, you didn't tell me anything niche or neat you've done this week. And I wanted to talk about something that is not niche, but is oh. very neat. And okay. we can approach it from a niche way. Ooh. This week it was announced that, well, it was reported on, okay. reported on, that Microsoft is currently developing ports of some of their first party franchises. And that list is now very extensive to play on Nintendo and Sony gaming platforms considering sony and nintendo are not in direct uh market share competition with each other uh well mm-hmm. they are but uh, they have they target different markets within that genre mm-hmm. we assuming this report is true we can finally say that the console wars are over the console yeah. wars that have existed since 1978 is that it 77 i guess i mean for me the console wars when i think about like when they were at their peak it was like i mean xbox and ps1 but i think it reached its real (coughs) fever pitch with the release of the ps2 and the xbox 360 and then the ps3 i guess yeah that like when you have like when you have like the online lobbies 
really proliferating in scope. That's like the like the peak of the the anger between people, but also it's like when it starts to wind down. So, would you like Matt? Yes. Me to put your test to the hypothesis as we look at some of the uh Did you say test to older... the hypothesis? As we look at some of the older console wars that begat the Sony-Microsoft rivalry. Okay. Uh, the console wars, I would say, started uh, after the Atari 2600 became a thing. Uh, Pong clones were very common, but it was only one game that people could replicate, right? Okay. There really okay. weren't other many other games at the time. Can I request a slight pause? Okay. Can you clarify to me yeah. in one to two sentences how you define a console war within this process? Because when I think about it, I think about like not just like the industry, but like a public, you know, kind of like loyalty like we see with the wrestling territories where it's like if you're from West Texas, you could go watch like Memphis wrestling if you wanted to. But fuck those guys. They're not West Texas. You know, I would like, say as does... long as there's some mudslinging, okay, either pretty much in public between the as, as long as there's as long as there's some sort of comparison that they're making to the competition, mm-hmm. I think it counts as a console war. Okay, so that's that's our baseline. So you're saying okay, right? So like so it like, starts you... out with. Atari, and then you have the Fairchild Channel F, and you have the Magnavox Odyssey 2, which create their own versions of Atari games. Man, that, and, that really is niche and neat right there. Yeah. Right? I, didn't, I didn't know what a single um, one of those things you just said were. And, well, while the Fairchild wasn't very successful, nor the Odyssey 2, mm-hmm. uh, their, their replacements, the Intellivision and the Commodore 64, were more okay. successful I've and touted of, better graphics than I, the Atari 2600. I have heard of the Commodore 64, so we're we're in the realm of me understanding what you're talking about. Hey, you've played on the Intellivision, bro. I also know what the Intellivision is, yeah. We played Burger Time together. Burger Time is a pretty good game, though I don't have... Yeah, I, it I, really is. As, as a slight aside, are you playing that new game that people... That, like, cooking game that everyone keeps talking about? That new game cooking game that people are talking about. There's like a new like Burger Time like chef making game that everyone keeps freaking out about. No, no, you don't cook in Burger Time, man. No, oh, sure, okay. You kill. What? Yeah, you walk all over their their corpses. Oh, true. And then you pepper spray them in the eyes. <laughs> yeah, dude, pizza, pizza nasty nasty man anyway uh in television and commodore uh then the video game crash of 83 and while atari licks its wounds nintendo comes in and nintendo was never really in direct competition with atari in fact the nes was almost sold as an atari product um so like they never really Nintendo tried not to start anything with anyone unless it was on their turf, which is when the Nintendo Sega console wars, what I think were the top tier console wars, uh, took place where you have ads. I, let me put it this way. The only console war 
to have the console war itself be put at the front of the product placement on every single ad was Sega. Sega does what Nintendo. I mean, like Sony and Microsoft touched that, but they never got they never got that close. So like we're like are the commercials like openly flagrant? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Atari with the Jaguar had commercials that filmed people putting a Sega Genesis and a Super Nintendo into a casket. Holy shit, that's awesome. Yeah, because they had 64 bits and Sega 32X only had 32 bits. Some of you believe your system is the most advanced in the universe. Let's review the numbers. Sega Genesis is 16 bits. 3DO is 32 bits. The Atari Jaguar is 64 bits. Which is more advanced? Clifford! Hmm? 16 and 32 are less than 64. So a 64 bits 3D graphics, real world animation, and lightning speed that you can only get with Jaguar? Which is more advanced? Clifford! Can you repeat the question? Jaguar! 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 That's incredible. Do the math. So like, Atari so, Jaguar. So like something like this. Like I just sent you uh, an ad. Yes. Yes. Exactly like this. Okay. Cut to yes. The- Home Alone the anime. Oh no. Yes. SNES versus Genesis. Yes. Exactly. So like they're they're openly saying, "Hey, Super Nintendo sucks. Yeah. You better be playing Genesis," which is like. It's like the Monday Night Wars of yeah. video games. Well, it's like I what I the thing I can relate to it the most is the uh Apple versus Android ads that have come out over the years where they have like openly shit on each other in advertisements. Yeah. Although I would say for as much as Sega made a part of their identity, the real kings of the console wars are Sony. Because what Sega applied with much pomp and circumstance, Sony would be cutthroat in their console wars. Um, Sony, I think, is the, besides Sega's own incompetence, Sony was the company that really sent Sega out of the console business with the PlayStation. Do you know the PlayStation Saturn story? No, I do not. I'm genuinely interested. E3 1995. Wow. I forget that E3 was that, is that old? You know what I mean? I think, I think 1995 was their first year. Okay. Because I remember watching E3 on, um, oh, that gaming TV channel. Um, G4. G4. Yeah. I remember I'd, I'd come home from school every day and watch G4 and uh like old reruns of digimon um and it was such a lens into the world that's how i learned about what e3 was at the time i it's it's hard to really get an idea of of e3 at the time Mm -hmm. because there it's a little conference room yep one guy walks up he says his speech and then he comes down Mm mm-hmm um Sega plans to have a big bombshell at E3 that year. They're currently set to come out about 2 months after the PlayStation's launch in America. Mhm. Well, they go up there 
to their podium and they say, hey guys, guess what? Sega Saturn is out today. $500. Go buy it. It's out today. Okay. Well, there's a problem with that. They only told a handful of their suppliers that they were releasing the console early. Uh Uh-oh. Which means that for the retailers they didn't tell, they were furious. You have to remember, they didn't plan a surprise launch. They moved up the launch, which meant that when this came out, they had a staggering shortage of consoles. Mm -hmm. They had no video games that were ready. They had two games available at release. And certain retailers, like KB Toys most famously, refused to sell the Saturn because they screwed them out of the launch. Holy shit. But the Sega Saturn died not when those angry phone calls from KB came in. Mm -hmm. The Sega Saturn died just later that same day when during the PlayStation press conference, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the guy, I think it was the CEO at the time, heads up to the podium. He's set to give an address. And instead... He puts down his notes and he says, I'm going to ask Sony Computer Entertainment Presidents of America, Steve Reyes, to join me for a brief presentation. PlayStation was beat to launch by the Sega Saturn, but it sold for a hundred dollars cheaper and oh, was wow. more powerful than the Saturn. Well, to put it in context Dead on for arrival. Our, put it on context for our arrivals, the the five hundred dollar cost for the, the for the uh, Sega is about a thousand dollars today. At least like eight hundred dollars. I, I like put that. it into the it's, Federal it's very... Bureau of Investigation's uh, inflation calculator, and it's one thousand three dollars man yeah that yeah that that ain't gonna cut it today no well Um, i mean some ps4 like the kitted out versions of some of these games of some of these consoles come in and around a thousand dollars and yet while sony did lose its way with the very awkwardly promoted ps3 that lost a lot of ground to the xbox 360 damn right it was microsoft's hubris with the launch of the Xbox One that enabled Sony to yeah. deliver what appears to be the second console war death blow by the company. Matt, mm-hmm. do you remember the Xbox One's digital only uh, concepts in the on-disc DRM that would Yo, prevent you from trading a game? Please don't remind me of that absolute nonsense. Probably it was, it was the awful. single most... It's probably the single most disastrous E3 of all time for Microsoft. Yeah, I remember. I remember sitting there watching them. Like everything they said. Other companies, other companies have had worse E3 conferences, but this is the most damaging. I think. Yeah. No. This. This one. Like. It's. It's as bad as when they announced the Gwent card game. 
or the mo- or, or when they announced the mobile version of um Diablo Diablo and you can the the video of that with the crowd going oh is this a joke is one of the most hard to watch corporate failures ever live streamed on the internet oh. and i when i think back to the i think back to those moments with like with longing it is truly magical to see something like that happen truly well and truly um yeah wow anyway at that conference uh microsoft talking about it's it's online only or or disc based Mm. drm how you're able to trade games with people how it's easy not easy Mm. and during sony's conference they show a video how to trade games on the playstation 4 okay and it's a five second video of someone handing a ps4 game to someone else and staring at the camera that is oh i i didn't see that that is glorious it's dead like you're dead yeah it's a kill shot microsoft apparently has seeded because now they're making games they're going to make games for the ps5 which means that now there's no reason to buy an xbox system there hasn't been for a long time yeah but now like they're admitting there's not yeah (laughs) um i just it's really cool because i let me i think this is bad for uh, development of the video game space mm-hmm. but also i think that microsoft's whole subscription service thing for video games oh, is a huge negative microsoft and game i like that sony doesn't know how to do that at all <laughs> with their playstation now yeah hasn't hasn't playstation now just completely failed like for my understanding game pass is actually like a relatively successful endeavor I think PlayStation Now is a moderate success for them. Okay. Cuz game I Pass don't think it's does make sense as a concept. It's cool. Like it's in, it is Yeah, Game Pass is cool as enticing. a concept, but I mean we've seen this happen in music and we've seen this happen in movies and we've seen this happen in TV. So like what like guys <laughs> don't fall for it this time. True. And maybe Game Pass will become the Spotify of video games. Right. That's bad. I don't want that. <laughs> I guess. I mean, the the benefit, at least for me, is that like, and it sounds, it, it doesn't, it sounds dumb to me, like saying it out loud, but like having moved beyond having a console, just a PC, has like made the stress of those kind of things just like disappear. Because I remember when I was a kid and like was like an avid Xbox 360 fan, you know, like. I like the idea of like Sony releasing exclusives and there being exclusive games to consoles still to some degree always annoyed me. Like I like I love that Microsoft is like taking the L in a sense in the larger war and allowing their games to be put onto those systems because the kind of exclusivity of gaming always bothered me because that means that like you either have to have like distinct loyalty or a lot of money or wait like five to six years later to when the consoles are finally affordable to go back and play those games. I like having separation between game consoles Mm -hmm. because I think it fosters different identities in the games that I can like less. So now 
than before because before game systems up until you know the ps4 era were all custom built right Mm -hmm. so like each system has its own feel like i like i'm playing donkey kong on the atari 7800 that sounds and it looks just like the nes version but like the soundscape is is entirely different and Mm. like i just at least back then i felt like that was something notable and i think even still to this day like ps5 and xbox x games Mm -hmm. do have a different vibe from nintendo switch and like i know a lot of that is due to power but i think if you notice games developed for nintendo switch Mm -hmm. that look good or or that look good or look bad look different than games that are ported over from ps4 and like it doesn't look Mm. right um even if like they they fix the glitches in there and everything so like i i appreciate that nintendo games are only on nintendo platforms i'm fine with there being exclusives because i think that's what keeps things from being a little more homogenized stylistically and maybe they don't need to be but i mean i think i think it's good to have a lot of uniqueness like if you have like if like every triple a game looked and tasted the same it would be a miserable place for the gaming world to be in and i think we started to get that with like the free to play MOBA slash like Fortnite model, which is like to me like a really sad, addictive, heartbreaking lens into the world. But then we get games like Baldur's Gate oh, Three yeah. or like Marvel's Midnight Suns and Life of P, which all feel like distinct and unique in their own kind of style. And mm. ty- typically, what I think happens, and we can see it in music, and it's always happening, but is when like something becomes super accessible like music is today with like Spotify and insert 10 other streaming apps here, it really allows like for a lot of innovation to come out of the underground. Like some of the indie games I've been able to play and see now games like the longing or the Stanley parable feel like, you know, so they feel very indie and very like low budget compared to like a Baldur's gate three but they feel like they have such a unique flavor and aesthetic to them. And that feels only possible because of the ubiquitous nature of a game of like a program like steam. Like otherwise these just sure. get released on a corner of the internet. And no one ever finds them like, you know, old black metal that was only ever released on tapes, but because of things like Bandcamp and other streaming platforms, we now know about like these tiny bands from like Slovakia that like have like eight listeners, but like, anyone can go and find it if you know where to look same with like mm, weird things fair. and like i mean there are examples that maybe contradictory like games like binding of isaac that i think kind of grew because of how strange they were but the fact that we were able to find and see it and engage with it i think is is one of the one of the advantages or a lens in which to draw an advantage uh behind the idea of like these kind of like bigger shared non-exclusives kind of world you know, I see that, and uh, and I can tolerate that assessment. Okay, cool. Yeah, rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah, rock and roll, bro. Uh, well, you know, that's a uh, <laughs> uh, so so that's our video game talk. Huh? that that have you gotten well have you gotten Boulder Gate something yet? we are also talking about today 
is the wild world of Hollywood. I don't know if you know this, Matt. Uh-huh. But 2023 is over. I didn't know that. It's 2024 now. And so I want to ask of you, what are your favorite movies of 2023? So, yeah, typically we would have done this a lot earlier uh, in the year, but circumstances were as they were. So I put together I put together a list of 13 films. Now, I'll, I'll go through some of them rather quickly because they kind of just fall into the realm of like, those were cool and worth watching, but don't necessarily warrant uh, a larger discussion. Um, the, the problem is this year is unlike in years like last year where I really spent a lot of time with cinema and like spent a lot of time at the cinema. I've not been able to spend nearly as much time. And I'm sure given like the insanity of the year I've had. There's a lot of movies I'm forgetting. So if there's something you're like, wow, I can't believe Matt didn't mention this. It's because I forgot about it. Um, but these Nuh-uh, are... It means you have a bad opinion. Yeah. So these are my now 14 films because I just remembered one that came out this year um, that we're going to go through. And one of them actually directly relates to what we were just talking about, Ben. So this is a great a transition. I think one of the most interesting about the history of video games is that video games not only have wars amongst themselves, these console wars and these like opinionated wars within cultures, like the, the debates of, you know, which is better, you know, Halo 3 or Modern Warfare 2 and like all of those things. But video games have also played a major part in wars that are just wars, like actual wars and like large scale cultural wars in one movie. Um, from earlier in the year that captured that experience well and it's my like number 14 movie of the year would be the uh tetris uh by by john s parade written by noah pink and starring the really surprisingly multifaceted tara edgerton um did you didn't did you end up seeing this at all ben it seems like a movie you would have watched on a on an airline flight it's on apple plus isn't it it is on apple tv yeah that's that's why i haven't seen it well, for those who haven't seen it, Tetris, you know, it tells the tale of the What's birth Tetris, of... Matt? Tetris is a video game. Wow. It... <laughs> Do you know what the puzzle pieces are called, Matt? Blocks? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, no. They're tetrominoes. That's dumb. Um, this. Hey, it... but it's niche and neat. It is. Um, the but, uh, da, da. <laughs> hey, welcome to Four Times a Charm, where we're talking about movies. Because the first discussion we had could have been its own episode. Um, this this movie does a really Ooh. good job. <laughs> I'm spicy. Today. This movie does a really good job, I think, of showing you how impactful and culturally relevant games are, um, and it tells kind of a heightened version of a real story um, that is still really enjoyable. So it's not. It, it, it is similar to the iron claw which i think <laughs> it's the prob- opposite of the iron claw which i feel like would the have iron been claw takes something fantastical and sort of bats it down a little yeah. bit and this movie did the opposite and i and if i had if i had put it up here i think iron claw would be right in line with tetris and like how i rank it because entertaining you can tell there's things about it that aren't true but it, it doesn't bother you that much unless you really care about it like i feel like this movie would probably to some degree annoy you but they get enough right that you'd enjoy it versus the iron claw where they 
got enough right that I enjoyed it, but it if you know enough, it gets really bad. Um, moving on from that, another another piece of historical uh, fiction that I think uh, sits in a very specific type of cinema, um, similar to a movie we just watched with Monty called Project Wolf Hunting, um, where it's the type of movie where you have some very clear bad guys who do some very clearly bad shit and you just want to watch them die. And no group of people in this world are worse and easier to watch die in film than Nazis. And, you know, a movie that promoted itself as the best time you best time you can spend watching Nazis get killed in the cinema is Sisu. Um, technically released overseas in 2022. Got international release here in the U.S. in 2023. Um, tells the story of a Norwegian man uh, killing a bunch of Nazis as they try to flee to get to safety through um through norway which was still staying neutral near the end of the war and it was like the last kind of bastion these nazis had to escape and it is just an absolutely brutal film if if cocaine bear had had the brutality this movie had that movie would have made this spot in my list but sisu really takes it's just good time very plot light utter violence and destruction yeah, I haven't heard of that one. It got a, it had uh, a very maybe I did and I just blocked it out of my mind. It it's one of those movies that I feel like in like 5 or 6 years no one's going to remember it, but at like the music box of horrors like 2055, they'll show a version of it cuz everyone'll be like back in mm. 2022, this absolutely That's brutal. what we call a cult classic. It has the chance. I don't know if it'll reach that status, but I think it could cuz it is just a really fun time. Uh, director and writer Jamalarari Heldarin. We're going with that. Um, how, how many people do you need to form a cult? I mean, the, the, the cult of thunder only had five people in it. I and feel it, like three's the minimum, right? Three's yeah. Three's a minimum with the, if your objective is to grow it larger. Well, okay. So they have one fan already. They just need two more and then they'll have a cult following. Well, Moving on from movies that they're going to have a cult following to mainstream wide appeal. Um, the number 11 movie on my list is a adaptation of not a video game, but of a board game. And that is 2023's Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves. Uh, directed mm. uh, by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. Written by Jonathan Goldstein, John Francis Daly, and like seven other people because it went through extensive rewrites um starring uh chris pine michelle rodriguez uh reggae page who's also in another movie we're going to talk about later um justice smith sophie lillis and hugh grant as well as a bunch of other great people this was just a really fun movie i'm shocked they didn't fuck this up cool did you did you get a chance to see it ben no all right so (laughs) Currently, we're at zero movies that Ben has seen on my list. Is that true? Yep. All right. We're at zero. Let's see how we can. Let's see how we can. This is is the third movie I've talked about. Oh, three. In one and out the other. All right. Yep. So, um, so that, yeah, next on the list was, uh, so number three on my big list is Dungeons and Dragons. Moving on from Dungeons and Dragons, another movie um that just had absolutely wide appeal 
was one of the most, if actually, no, the most successful movie of 2023. The recent... Oh, no, I did see Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I thought you did. I was expecting that one to elicit a conversation. Oh, yeah, you, sorry. You... It it didn't make a huge impact. Clearly not. Um, a movie, no, a it movie, was okay. A movie that didn't make a huge impact on me necessarily, but only a few, some of it was so catchy and pop entertaining that it stuck with me was a uh was uh Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Um it's undeniably a fun movie, a great movie. It's the, it's like a pop music movie. Um but it it pushes the boundaries and pushes the audience with like the dialogue and some of the messaging that it's actually worth rewatching. It's a fun time. The songs in it are great. I genuinely think that uh Ryan Gosling deser- deserves at least a nomination. Uh, for best supporting actor, uh, because his role in this movie is absolutely tremendous. Um, uh, Margot Robbie does great. Issa Rae, Kate McKinnon, everyone in this movie absolutely crushes it. Did you get a chance to see Barbie, Ben? Because I feel like you would like weirdly like. Yeah, it. everybody's seen Barbie. Barbie's great, bro. I no, it, it's it's a really it's everything you want a movie like that to be, which yeah. is not easy to do. Um, I, I think it's a really masterful film and I thought they nailed it. Yeah, I have to agree. And that's, and that's why it sits just outside of my top 10. Cause it was good, but I liked this. I liked the, I'm just Ken song more than I liked yeah. the rest of the movie. And like, that's not enough to push it into my top 10. And now the last, I guess, honorable... also the fact that they did copy and paste the, the evil executive from the Lego movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like the same guy, same actor and everything. Now, another another movie that takes a little bit of a copy and paste, but I think does it a lot better than Barbie did and is in this realm of of the modern horror movie remake that we've been talking about. And they're finally doing it right is Evil Dead Rise, the movie that's it's just outside of my top 10. Um, really a tremendous film. We, we all watched this. We talked about this one rather extensively on air, so we don't need to dwell on it, but Lee Cor- uh, Krogan really does a good job nailing the ultra violence and like gritty vibe of the original evil dead and doesn't lean too hard into the comedy and silliness of evil dead two and those beyond. I just think the reason that I don't love it as much is because I think we already had an incredible remake of evil dead um, that captures the vibe of the original movie super well, uh, which is the 2013 Sam Mendes version. But this is definitely on my list is one of the best horror remakes we've seen only falling in comparison to the Hellraiser remake that we got recently, um, which I believe came out last year. Otherwise I would have talked about it here. Um, I don't remember. 2022. All right, we're good. Woo. All right. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the evil, evil dead rise, I think is the, is the best horror remake we got this year in a great film, but we don't need to wax poetic on it. It's weird. Cause whenever you talk about evil dead rise, Mm -hmm. you, what you say makes it seem like you like it. The way you talk about it, like your voice makes it sound like you didn't love it. I didn't, I, I, I didn't love it. I really liked it. Um, but you it seemed disappointed. I, I guess I am a little bit. I, okay. I, I, 
I can't say I'm disappointed because it's a good horror movie about like demons and it's well executed and it looks really cool and all the features are good, but it could have been better. Oh, by the way, Matt, mm-hmm. I, the Cube 2021 oh, God, fuck that movie. was released on Shudder this year. Oh, really? So if you want to talk about it, it does count. Uh, no. Um, that movie sucked. That's that. That's in my bottom three with Infinity. What? What if it was a bad dub? What it, could the dub change? Everything? No, there's there's nothing you could do with the dialogue or audio of that movie to make it better because the baseline interactions the movie has with the cube and the narrative choices it makes with changing the rules of the world are insufferable. Good, good. That was the right answer. I, Both I just the reason Hellraiser and Evil Dead Rise are great, and the the as they stay loyal and honest to the rules of the universe as set out by the first two Evil Dead movies, and it actually understands and respects those themes, so that when it's executing a new version of that, it doesn't just feel like some placating bullshit. It feels like it actually means something. Powerful words. Truer words never spoken. I, I, you know, I, I'll take it. Uh, and we are just now getting to my official top 10. Um, and I'm going to go through the bottom five quickly because we've talked about them a lot. Um, Monty and I have talked about them. Either I have talked about them. And I don't think you've seen any of them. Um, so it'll be easy to bump through. And number five is going to be something I'm very excited to see how you feel about it now. Um, but starting at number 10, another one of the most successful movies of the year, one of the most lauded and popular films you can see, I think probably the most artistically important film on my list or not necessarily important, but ambitious and successful, uh, Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, um, tremendously oh, that movie was so much fun. Great film, such a cool genuine. It's, it's a, it's a comic book movie that genuinely feels like a comic book. And it feels like you could watch, I could watch it a thousand times. Just, yeah, just a perfectly great fun movie with, and it does something very well that other movies that didn't do very well this year, which is it sets itself up as very clearly a two part film. But by the end of the first, the end of the movie, you feel like you've had narrative satisfaction. You know, it's going to lead directly into a sequel, but it doesn't feel like you're missing anything from watching it. Which is, is we saw fail with movies like um, uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and um, the new uh, Fast and the Furious movie, which feels like it wants just to set up the sequel, where this movie doesn't just feel like it's a, um, a trailer. It feels like it's just a genuine movie. What I would say the biggest success of this movie mm-hmm. is that we were like 10 minutes into the movie and I was thinking to myself, Oh wow. I'm so excited. There's still like two hours left. Yeah. Did you see this in theaters? You know? No. Oh man. The, the, we saw this in Dolby. So like arguably the best screen kind of screen you can see it in, in modern cinema, really mind blowingly beautiful. Like the colors man. were, I, we, we, it was one of the only movies we saw twice this year. In in, in 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 theaters and it was really utterly captivating well if this one is so high up your list i wonder what else is to follow 
So following it up, this next movie, I think, sits in a very similar place to this one. It's another comic book movie. I think it was one of the it was the only arguably good live action comic book movie released this year. Um, and that is James Gunn's um, goodbye message to the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Um, the reason this movie... I, have, I haven't watched two, oh, which God. means I can't watch three. You can't. I'll get there. You'll get there. You'll get Someday. there. This, this is one of the most emotionally depressing and devastating uh, MCU movies ever released. Um, it's really the only truly successful mcu project outside of some of the tv that came out this year um and it is such an incredibly impactful story um not nearly as beautiful or as magical as something like spider-man um but it really does capture such an amazing conclusion and does feel like a farewell message from james gunn um he's definitely having to do some retroactive stuff here with the writing to deal with some of the stuff that Kevin Feige did with the MCU when he wasn't writing, but really, really solid uh, outside of across the spider verse. It was the movie that stuck with me the most from the kind of comic book fun kind of realm. And the rest of my movies, I think sit, sit, sits themselves in a different place. Um, That's fair. Except for the next one, um, which <laughs> is again, a very fun movie. It's a sequel. But it manages to end its end a franchise in a really beautiful way. And I think the reason it hit above Guardians 3 was because of the focus on a single character. So that the emotionally impactful and intense ending felt really, really powerful. And that's John Wick Chapter 4. Um, probably the greatest modern action franchise put to film. Uh, it managed, I think, to outdo things like Mission Impossible and like Fast and the Furious um, tenfold in just four movies. Uh, and four is a movie that I went into with the expectation of like, great, they're going to have they're now going to be repeating themselves and I'm going to be tired. Right. And they managed to not only innovate in the action they do innovate right. in the in the realms of intensity that they take things but they genuinely push the story in a direction that felt fresh felt exciting but also felt like the perfect end to the story of a character like to the point that when the movie ends i was like trying to create theories in my head that the that the series would continue in a certain way just because i fell so deeply in love with john wick as a character by the end of this movie i'm like devastated about how the movie ends didn't they already say they're making another one? They they are going to make John Wick sequels in the John Wick universe. It, it's debatable whether John Wick will actually be in them. Ah, I see. And they already did the TV show, I, I which think I he'll, think I think did poorly. I I think he's gonna show up. Oh, I I like, I do too. I, <laughs> I I I think he'll show up in like a little sneaky cameo ways yeah i think he'll like be at the stanley end. in the marvel movies where he's like i'm the hot dog man yeah, yeah stuff like but that he's got his eye on everything he knows what's going on yeah and the movie does lend itself for a sequel um but also lets itself end in a way that you feel like you don't need to see it um but genuinely one of the most innovative movies 
Um, clearly the director is a big fan of Hotline Miami because that was probably one of the coolest scenes I have ever seen in an action film. Um, oh, the, they did a Hotline Miami scene? Do, oh, my, you need to watch this movie, Ben. Just for that scene. The 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 way the action transitions with the camera to... And it's it's in trailers and everyone's fucking talked about it, so I don't, so I'm not spoiling anything for anyone. But there is a scene in the movie where John Wick enters a building and you think it's just going to be another john wick going through and just murdering everyone from like his like back pov like we normally get and he picks up a shotgun with uh like dragon's breath with her like exploding like flaming shotgun rounds and as he lifts it up the camera cranes up to a top-down view as if the ceiling's gone and follows him from above as he moves room from room just blasting the fuck out of people pretty crazy it is so cool it is one it is probably the of all of these movies it probably has the single coolest moment you know just like pure cool of any of the films on my top 10 well what is a less cool but better movie than john Uh, wick 4 i would say uh moving into the realm of the most successful awkward film of the year um i was hoping this slot would go to poor things um which is a movie that I am exceedingly disappointed by, but that is another conversation for another time. A movie that did not disappoint me, but surprised me with how good it was and how much it made me think and made me want to rewatch it was the new Wes Anderson feature asteroid city. Um, you know, it follows a story of a writer on his, uh, on his world's famous fictional play about a grieving father who travels with his tech obsessed family to a small world asteroid city um, to complete some events. And it goes in such a wild direction. It has such a beautiful kind of commentary on storytelling and what it means to be within a story and to be telling that story and what it can mean to the people in it. Just a genuinely captivating movie that at, at times does that great kind of like the Wes Anderson thing where you feel like you're in an uncanny Valley version of reality because something weird weird just shows up and everyone's just like, huh, that happened. It genuinely really cool, beautifully shot, of course, beautifully written and directed. And it it was a movie that might not have been as cool as John Wick chapter four, but I really, uh, when I'm like trying to rate things based on like, not only how much did I like them, but how well they are done in the type of movie I want to see this movie does that super well. And there's only one other movie that I feel like captures this kind of old world vibe um, in a way that's the super Mario brothers movie. God, no, that truly kind of like transcends what this movie was trying to do Um, in a completely different genre of filmmaking, but in a really cool way. Um, I assume you have not seen asteroid city, Ben. I have not. Okay. We're... I almost saw it. And then you didn't? I, and then I didn't. All right. You already knew the end to that. I know. Um, I just wanted to make you say it. Now, another movie um, that is actually a lot sadder that you haven't seen, um, because I think this movie, if we were doing this list, having you seen all these movies, might sit at the top of your list for the year. This is the tremendous evolution of two YouTubers who went from making shorts and and short films on YouTube to releasing their first feature-length film, and it's genuinely 
and Beyond Compare, probably the second best horror movie I saw in all of 2023, which is Talk to Me. Um, I, I heard it described as the pinnacle of Gen Z horror. And if that's if this is the pinnacle and this is the baseline we're going to be working from, from this kind of new generation and new focus of social commentary, I would ask for nothing else. Um, the only movie I can really compare this to, and it, and it sits in this realm, both for its storytelling direction and its quality, is uh, It Follows. This is genuinely one of the best horror films. And it, as a Was horror, It Follows really this year? No, It Follows is not this year. Yeah, it I just, was going to say. It just it feels like It Follows. And like it's both in its quality and in its atmosphere. Um, but it feels like it really is meant and written well enough that the age of the characters feels honest and not like, you know, how you doing kids, you know, fellow children kind of vibe. Um, it really genuinely is a tremendous film. And I think you will absolutely lose your mind once you get a chance to watch it. Sounds cool. Um, following that up and, and entering my official top five. So that was number six top five. All right. The, the number five slot was a movie that I, I've only seen, I've only saw it once in its entirety. And because of the intensity of the film, I feel like I only ever need to see it once, but it was so innovative. It was so powerful that it actually traumatized Ben. And that is Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid. The oh, that's three my number one for the year. hour epic uh, by Ari Aster. Now, now I loved and, and enjoyed this movie, but, and Ben, we, we talked pretty extensively about your cinema experience, but now that we're at the end of the year, how do you feel about Bo is Afraid? It's a masterpiece. Right. Um, Cause like it works from both angles. It works from someone who has anxiety and it works for someone who doesn't. Um, yeah, it's a, it's pretty much a perfect movie. I, 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 ha- I have to agree. And I think we, 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 we spent a whole episode talking about this yeah. one. So this Gen- is just repeating. Yeah. But genuinely yeah, a, it's, a great film. Highly masterful. Go watch it. Watch it alone in a dark room. Um, treat yourself to just the, and pay very close attention. Um, now number four is the only movie I, well, I know I guess some of the other ones, but this is like the other movie that I think is like one of like the triple a video game level movies of the year that i really loved and i think it's the best of those um an incredibly accessible movie that in the words of the director the fact that this movie got made and it made a billion dollars indicates that cinema is alive and well and it really was like a beautiful breath of fresh air for me to see a film like this being made and get the reception it did and that is christopher nolan's oppenheimer um cillian murphy oh, i thought Emily you were talking Blunt. about the super mario brothers movie no you, you know somehow that avoided my top 20 I, I liked it but it does not stick with me and i've had no Damn. interest in watching shock it again. you shock me i know i know if i it, really come in here with a with a, with a shock and awe um yeah genuinely an incredible movie just probably the best made movie of the year when it comes to utilizing the current top end cinema ability like if you look at all these movies and you look at which movie uses modern technology and the most up-to-date and innovative ways of using film and cinema equipment 
What movie does that the best? What movie pushes the boundaries the furthest? It's Oppenheimer. Um, the only reason it sits out of my number one spot or out of my top three is because the story, while really well done and beautifully told, didn't take me over the edge. It didn't really like make my soul quake or make me feel really excited or deeply about what was happening. But it does an incredible job. It's probably one of the best acted films on this whole list. It deserves all of the awards it's going to win. Uh, and I, I genuinely recommend you check it out, Ben. Uh, above almost anything I've talked about so far besides maybe Asteroid City. Fair enough. All right, moving on to my top three. Um, my top three has a, a very interesting thing. Now, there are multiple movies on this list that I think try to capture a historical vibe. Maybe not intentionally being overly aggressively set in a certain time period, but are paying direct homage to an era of cinema and a style of cinema. And one of the eras and styles of cinema that I love is the coming of age movie from the 70s. Uh, we've watched a bunch of these movies. They, the, the experience was really well captured by a, more, a slightly more modern movie, which is the Dead Poets Society. It's this movie about being alive in this time before the internet, before this kind of advancement, but it has this kind of cozy adventure feel. And that is the thankfully award now nominated film, The Holdovers. Um, this movie came out at a very uh, impactful time in my life. Um, and it's the type of movie that I think would have been a favorite of my parents. Um, and, it is such a beautifully told story. It is so well shot. The performances in it are genuinely surprising. Our our main our main actor, um, Dominic Sessa, has never has not really ever done any other films. This is his first debut um, as an actor outside of doing the stage, and he's sitting next to Paul Giamatti. And Divine Joy Randolph, who give genuinely moving, tremendous uh, performances in this movie. Um, Paul Giamatti blew me away. Um, I think if you're a fan of a film like The Dead Poets Society or just of 70s kind of slice of life storytelling, this movie not only looks like a 70s film, takes place in the 70s, but feels like one of the best examples of that style of filmmaking without feeling like it's aping from its predecessors. Um, Alexander. So Pink, it's a better version of the Fablemans. Substantially. Substantially better than Fablemans. I looked at that movie thinking about this list and I was like, fuck that movie. Um, but this isn't, this is an Alexander, Alexander Payne movie. Um, he did, you know, he was the director for Nebraska for sideways the Descendants, uh, he's done a bunch of great films, but this was him really just allowing himself to do exactly what he, he wanted and doing it in his perfect way. Uh, probably the best homage you're going to see to the 70s um, from any director and for a long time. All right. And this movie... We have your top two. Now, the this top two... Um, number two was a really hard slot. The movie that ended up here was originally much further down the list. And, um, and this, that might be because of recency bias. It only recently came out. 
Uh, but I think in after having seen it and thought about it and sat with it, it is such a refreshing film. Um, it's not playing with any kind of old film styles. It feels very unique to both the writer and director. It feels very powerful. It feels captivating, unnerving, and is centered with such incredible performances that I think everyone out there should go and check this out. A movie that I definitely intend to get Ben to watch very soon. And that is <gasps> Emerald Fennell's Saltburn. Uh, an erotic oh. an erotic thriller that huh, really okay. I'm blew curious. me away. There's two movies I feel like you would put on here, and I'm not sure which one you forgot about. Wait, what what are they? Well, well I, I I want to I want to get your list first. Okay. I want to give you a chance to change. All right, all right. So this movie uh, really blew me away this year. Um, Barry Kogan, Jacob Elordi, Rosamund Pike, Richard E. Grant, Archie McWady, and Sandy Savell really created something truly outstanding here um i think when it comes to making your audience kind of feel off kiltered and not know how and where to trust and how to feel about a protagonist is really hard thing to do as a, as a storyteller and i think especially in cinema but your ability to execute both changing turning your main character from it protagonist to antagonist but still having the movie end with him as the protagonist so you feel like you're leaving the movie like yeah that was awesome is really that really, sounds like fun all really right. really all right, hard that's to pull all off. i need and all i'll say the only other thing that i think i need to leave you with for this movie ben is at one point a man drinks the cummy bath water of another man as a metaphor for obsession what movie is it closest to? That's really difficult for me to say. Even better. I genuinely cannot think of a movie to directly reference it to and it be an adequate representation. All right. All right. Even better. And that moves right. us to number one. Um, number one. A movie that I know sits itself in comparison and in reverence to an entire era and style of cinema, an entire style of cinema that I personally don't have a ton of experience with, but comes from the great, it comes in reference to, I think the greatest decade in horror. Now, Ben, can you, I, I'm curious what you think. What is the greatest decade in horror? I think for enjoyable films, the 80s. Oh. Yeah. Well, I while I agree with you, I think the 80s has some of the most like fun horror films. I think the era that did horror the best is the 70s. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. That's but, fair. And I think... I never, I never said I had good taste. Yeah. That's right. That's why, that's why you weren't the taste maker. Um, <laughs> um, but... There was a movie I got to see this year, and you've heard my my gut reaction review to it um, at the Music Box of Horrors. One of the only movies I've ever seen debut at the Music Box of Horrors through such intense fanfare and such impactful thing. It is the 
movie on this list that if I could not, if I could not force you to watch a new movie for another entire year and I could get you to watch this one because I know deep inside this might actually take your top spot, maybe actually beating out Bo is Afraid is the uh, Austin Jennings film Eight Eyes. Uh, we talked about this rather... We did talk about this. Rather in depth. This is genuinely one of the best practical, short, contained horror films I have ever seen. Uh, Bruno Velikovsky um, plays the uh, main character, uh, St. Peter. Um, And I don't know a horror antagonist or villain that I felt more enraptured by than, than maybe since, I don't know, maybe, maybe like Midsummer, which is kind of like a society that envelops you. It is really a tremendous homage to seventies, like European wow. giallo filmmaking so incredibly shot, so tight, so incredibly well acted for such a small movie. Um, and getting to hear from Austin Jennings talking about what it took to make this movie made that hit even harder. So my number one movie of the years, and I know I, based on Ben's previous reaction, I'm definitely missing something that I talked about with. I'm surprised you didn't add two movies. All right. So that, I'm surprised that's, you. That's my yes, number one. Yeah. Eight Eyes is number one. I'm surprised you didn't have Renfield Ah, on there. Okay. That that would have that if I had added a fifteen film, that would have made it as number fifteen. I'm surprised you like Tetris more. Yeah. It was fun. It was different. Renfield was cool, but like, like I'm I don't know when I'm gonna watch Renfield again. And the other one. I'm surprised you didn't have ranked is when evil lurks. Ooh, well, yeah. Hmm. That is an interesting Because I think when evil lurks was a smashing movie. See, when I'm looking at when evil lurks, I'm looking at this top 10 list and I'm like, is it better than eight eyes? No. Is it better than salt burn? No. Is it better than Oppenheimer? No, but did I like it more than Oppenheimer? Maybe. But I wouldn't. I if I had to choose to watch Oppenheimer again or When Evil Lurks again, I'd probably watch Oppenheimer again. Um, now Bo, it, it could have taken the Bo is Afraid slot as one of the like my hyper intense film of the year, but outside of that, I think the distinct boringness of the first act doesn't allow it to sit at the top of the list because a movie like i think matt you need to spend more time embracing the first act as being okay to be boring i think it's okay to have a boring first act just make it more interesting unless i don't know like it it was then it wouldn't be boring exactly but it was boring boring. is part of it it it's maybe it's like that just means that you're fighting that just means that you don't have that, that that's on you yeah that's I'll on you that. that's all I'll, I'll say i'll accept that me not enjoying that movie as much because i thought the beginning was so boring is on me um but you know what that makes us ben that makes what's us, it make us matt it makes us both niche and neat 
and I think I've, I have a pretty, well, while opening up with not very many niche selections, I think we rounded out here with some pretty niche um, picks here. And I think that's what makes fourth time to chime a magical place because I don't know anyone out there who's putting eight eyes in the top of the, their list. And I don't know any, many people out there who's seen it besides those, those who saw it with me at the Music Box of Horrors. So I think I think we've done a great job here today, Ben. Not only that, Matt, I feel like you didn't even need a second, a third, or a fourth time. Because for you, this was your fourth time the charm. We're yep. running over that even though it didn't make sense. That. Good night and good morning. Ooh. Don't mention it, Matt. Forever with the underground. Follow us on Instagram. Talk to y'all later. <laughs> <laughs>